I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Black Lives Matter edition. It's June 10th, 2020. On today's show, we will be discussing anti-racist reading lists are in fashion now for white liberal readers especially, but on what premise do they proliferate and get sampled from? We discussed this with Lauren Michelle Jackson. And then cops are just everywhere in popular culture. I mean, they practically make up popular culture as we understand it. Is it time to acknowledge fictional representations of law enforcement are part of the problem here? Should all cop shows be canceled? And finally, the current protests are unthinkable without citizen video footage made from iPhones. They prevent all the apparatuses of denial from kicking in and saying what is clearly happening is not happening. We will discuss uh, the consequences of everyone having a device with which to capture police malfeasance. Uh, joining me today is Julia Turner, who is, of course, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times, calling in from LA. Hey, Julia. How's it going? Hello, Steve. And of course, Dana Stevens, film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hello, Steve. Okay, Julia. Well, obviously, this is not a usual week to be doing a show. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we had said last time that we were going to talk about the great ballet movie Center Stage this week. For all of you who watched the great ballet movie Center Stage, we will talk about it in a future week. But given the mass protests across the country and the world uh, in in protest of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis and of systemic and structural racism everywhere, we wanted to devote all three topics to subjects related to the protests uh, and to the underlying systemic and structural racism that they're about. Yeah, here we go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lauren Michelle Jackson is a professor of English and African-American studies at Northwestern University. She's the author of White Negroes, When Cornrows Were in Vogue, and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation. She joins us to discuss her essay, What is an Anti-Racist Reading List for? in New York Magazine. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let me begin by quoting from your piece, which is amazing. An anti-racist reading list means well. How could it not with some of the finest authors, scholars, poets, and critics of the 20th century among its bullet points? Still, I am left to wonder, you write, who is this for? So let me begin by asking you, who indeed? What did you discover? Who is such a reading list for? The list is is for you know the person that needs it. It's for a person who is, you know, kind of like, desperate in a way and I don't mean that in like a mean way but for someone who is feeling sort of at a loss of like just like what to do what to think what you know what's right and so it's a person who's really looking for something to hold on to um a person who's realizing that they are actually not intellectually equipped to to deal what's going on around them and really what has been going on around them for for longer than they've realized. Mm. And it's like this list is like never, it's like never changing. It's always the same sort of set of books. And, you know, I think that's sort of indicative of, 
you know, I guess we're actually not reading these books because if we were reading these books, we wouldn't actually have to, you know, recycle them sort of sort of over and over again. I mean, the one thing I'd love to hear is just some names off of that, you know, typical canonical anti-racist list. Well, okay, so there's always there's always going to be there's always going to be James Baldwin and it's not going to be like the Baldwin that you know, really loved film and was, uh, you know, just such a sharp film critic and critic of art in general. No, it's going to be like the Baldwin that's going to like, you know, read the racist for filth or whatever. It's going to be that Baldwin. It's going to be the autobiography of Malcolm X. It's going to be Michelle Alexander. It's going to be Zora Neale Hurston, but it's not going to be, again, it's not going to be the Zora Neale Hurston that was a scholar and a folklorist. It's going to be, you know, their eyes are watching God. So, you know, as a, as a white reader, you get to see, you know, the tales of the downtrodden or whatever. It's going to be Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me, even though I think, you know, as a, White liberals love Ta-Nehisi Coates, but I think it's like, if you're trying to learn about the sort of history of sort of racism or whatever, like you could, you know, it would make more sense to like assign, I don't know, like one of his long form Atlantic pieces and not this this book that's, I think, doing something different. But, you know, it's a, it's a very, you know, it tends to be this very stable list. And then you also get um, these books that I, you know, in the piece I call them, race readers, which basically just, you know, the books that are actually courting the type of the type of reader that I think would look for an anti-racist reading list, which is to say, like, these are books for people who know that they don't know anything about race and are trying to learn about race in a in a very quick manner. And I think those books actually serve, you know, they serve the purpose that, you know, they're courting those type of readers, which I think you know, those books are actually what would belong on something as broadly conceived as like an anti-racist reading list. But then you have all these other books that are, I guess, about race, about racism, but they're also, you know, books of varying genres that are trying to, are also trying to do something that can't be reduced to helping white people, like, be better white people. Yeah, I one thing I really loved about your essay was the tone like that there's a spirit of almost wry exhaustion in it like one thing that the USA made me think about um is the way in which I consume management books like when I became a boss I started buying management books I don't read them I just have a pile of them <laughs> like and it's almost as though like maybe if I just have a stack it will I'll absorb it somehow and and it it you know, you you there've been there's been reporting, of course, of many of the books you mentioned, and some others, um, including on some lists, your book. I think I've seen, um, you know, being purchased in this moment, and you know, better for people to buy it, and hopefully, some percentage of the people who buy them read them. But I thought the spirit of of uh, I don't know was I was I wrong in identifying a certain exhaustedness in your essay? No, I actually like I. Rye exhaustion is like, that is, yes. But <laughs> I actually, I'm so glad, you know, you know, sometimes you like, you write something like this and people are like, oh, she's really angry. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I'm not, I'm like never angry. I'm literally just like always tired. Um, so like I, you know, rye exhaustion is, I think, hopefully that's kind of what, you know, what I was trying to admit. 
Speaking of wry exhaustion, uh, Lauren, you wrote for Slate last year about one of the books that currently is apparently impossible to get. It's on back order because so many people, presumably white people, are ordering it. It's called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And uh, when this book came out, you went to a workshop taught by the author that was essentially a workshop in a workshop basically for, for white people in sort of confronting their own whiteness. And you have this almost comical sort of um, first person account of being one of the, I, I gather, one of the few people of color at this workshop and, um, and getting grouped into a small group with some other people who are supposed to talk about their life experience with race. And it's a wonderful essay. And at the end, I mean, I would say that to some degree, you draw a somewhat comic conclusion that this is kind of a room full of people talking to themselves to make themselves feel better. And that that creates a kind of self-perpetuating loop that keeps it from being something that actually influences people's behavior in the outside world. I think what was interesting about actually going to that sort of event or seminar, um, and I'd never actually, I'd never been to anything like that, is that, you know, so we're, you know, we're here to like learn about and talk about white fragility. And we're there to, you know, obviously it's mostly geared toward white people with the idea of sort of improving what D'Angelo calls like racial stress. You know, it's the reaction, this sort of emotional uh, sort of protective reaction that happens with the, you know, the smallest, like the slightest amount of being made aware of, you know, you as a white person being white. And yet, you know, sort of the fact of like being in this room and having this conversation and having these really polite conversations with people around you in some ways is also like a guard against any actual like white fragility, like erupting like in the space or something like that. I don't know. It was just like, it was like one of those things where it's like the whole point of change and changing your behavior is that, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable. You know, it's going to be easier to take the the easy way out, the way that you've been raised, the way that you've been conditioned. Um, and white people are rewarded for taking that route. And there actually are consequences for white people who who don't take that route. And it's like, how can that happen if we're all having a polite conversation? It's like that happens, you know, politeness is is racist in a way. Like it can't happen in the space of, of the polite. Um, you know, just seeing that book like skyrocket you know, again, to the top, it's like, oh, it's, you know, this is like another reason for us to think that this book is going to unlock like the secrets of like the universe. And it's like, no, it's not one book. And that's kind of like what the kind of what my beef is with the the list. It's like, oh, it's not, you know, there's the implication that like this one list is going to solve everything. And like, even if you read every single book on this list, even if you read every single book on this list, like deeply and spent time with it and had discussions with people and, and wrote essays about it, like even then, like you can't just like, there's not ever going to be a point where you get to turn your brain off. Right. And there's something about that. I mean, that, that experience sounds so fascinating. And there's something about just the very idea that your you, the white person's pilgrim's progress towards being more racially enlightened would come in like a, you know, workshop that's trying to make you comfortable with your discomfort that you can buy, which is like not 
you know, it's a privilege in and of itself to be educated about race in that way or to feel like, ah, my my study of the experience of racism in America is something I will buy from Amazon and, um, <laughs> you know, stack on my bedside table and like hopefully get to in between my other duties. Yeah. And also the Amazon of it all is like, it's like, oh, my God, it's like so <laughs> your like race education is like going to happen like courtesy of like Bezos, like. Just that, you know, it makes me dizzy, really. Right. Yeah, okay. Well, if um, armed with the thoughtfulness that Lauren has provided, you are still planning to acquire some of these books by them on bookshop.org. Can I ask you, Lauren, for a, a little counter list within the list? When you mention, for example, and I really do see this in also, you know, just in having been in academia in the way that texts by non-white authors are assigned, especially in courses that are kind of generalist courses that aren't specifically, you know, for example, African-American studies. You're, you're absolutely right that, for example, the Baldwin that gets read is the Baldwin of The Fire Next Time and not the Baldwin of, say, The Devil Finds Work, his great book about um, film and film criticism. Do you have any other alternate titles like that where you would say instead of the bluest eye read x well but the thing is like (laughs) see this is so hard because it's like it's not like the books on the list are bad like please read the bluest eye i i love the bluest eye i think it's it's you know it's a novel that is really important to me and i wrote about it in a chapter of my dissertation like yes read the bluest eye but read the bluest eye you know as i say in the piece as a novel you know, don't read it as, uh, you know, as a as a teaching tool for your like latent racism or something like that, right. Right. right? You know, and that goes for, I mean, that goes for any of Morrison's novels. That goes for you know, Beloved, which is the one I think most people read. But again, they read it as like their reminder that you know, slavery is never passed or something like that, which is like you know, sort of a very general way to read that book, but there's so much that, I mean, there's so much that goes on in that book. I mean, I don't have to hype up Beloved, like, come on. But, you know, (laughs) I think, I think, you know, reading is great. I I mean, I'm literally a literature professor, so I'm never going to say, like, don't read. But I think people should probably know why they're reading or what they're reading for or what, you know, what they're trying to get out of, out of a, a certain genre of literature. And so, you know, like I said, there are, you know, the books for the person who's like, I just need like a quick and dirty, like history of America. What is, you know, why is housing racist? Why are prisons racist? Why is X racist? Why is racism in like the foundation, like of our country? Like there are books that invite that. There are books that want that kind of reader that are marketed very specifically and very heavily for that kind of reader. And so, yeah, like totally go read those books. Like that's what those are for. Again, don't think that they are going to, you know, be exhaustive in any way, um, which is why, you know, like I said, it's like kind of distressing that it's like, oh, everyone's running out to read like White Fragility. And then, you know, if they even read it, like that's going to be like the end of that story. Um, But yeah, totally read those type of books. But it's like, if you want to read some of the greatest authors, poets, essayists, fiction writers, short story writers of, you know, the 20th century, the 19th century, the 21st century, then you have to meet those writers where they're coming from, you know? Right. I I mean, Lauren, one of my favorite parts of your essay was the idea that when you read literature in 
that way in search of a therapeutic conversion of your own white racism, you're inherently insulting and downgrading it. And and you're sort of setting it in, aside in a different category from other works of literature that's kind of ultimately insulting to it. And I wonder if there's a way to get away from that notion of white therapeutic conversion towards like just a more analytic category, like just understanding that racism is about accumulated structures of power. And if you don't understand that, you don't actually see your world as it is in itself. Like you are actually missing a empirical feature of the society that you live in. And so as opposed to like, a kind of semi-religious or, or, or you know, conversion experience. It's just putting on a pair of eyeglasses and actually seeing the society you live in as it is, right? If you don't understand how capitalism is racial capitalism, you don't understand capitalism. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's maybe why it feels so overwhelming for people because it's like if racism and anti-blackness is everywhere, like how do you, how do you compartmentalize the world in order to be able to actually discern what's going on. But I also think on that token, like we, we actually like do that all the time with the things that we want to learn about, you know, the person who wants to learn about world war two or whatever has to start somewhere and they figure out, they see, you know, for some reason, you know, people who want to learn about like planes and trains and boats and wars and whatever, like seem to find a way to like, enter into that body of knowledge despite there being you know so much there that like precedes them right like I saw a tweet the other day that was like you know a couple weeks ago when everyone wanted to know how to do like sourdough starter somehow like people figured out how to do that and yet now Mm -hmm. it's like you know I gotta learn about race it's like some you like you need someone to hold your hand right it's like (laughs) people have ways of finding out the information that they genuinely want to know and so I think sometimes the problem with the list is that it actually is enabling the type of person who maybe actually doesn't want to learn maybe they want to want to learn maybe they want to want to have the desire to to become more conscious about what's going on around them but like the actual motivation you know is not there because if you wanted to read these books like you would have read them already they're not you know they're not outside the canon by any means yeah um thanks again lauren this was a great essay and a great segment we really appreciate you coming on thank you so much All right. Well, Lauren Michelle Jackson, she's a professor of English and African-American studies at Northwestern. Her piece is uh, found on Vulture. I might have said New York Magazine, but check it out on Vulture, and we will link to it on our Twitter feed and show page. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, before we go any further, this is where we typically talk about business. I will do it this week. Um, First off, we want to remind you, of course, this is summer strut season. Every year we have listeners send us a favorite song of the summer or something that you want to walk or jog to, but most importantly, something you want to strut to or that makes you strut. Um, We'll discuss the favorites with Slate's pop critic, Billboard chart 
egyptologist Chris Melanthi. So please send your favorite summer songs to culturefest at slate.com. That's culturefest at slate.com. The list is starting to bulk out, but we have a ways to go. It's a, uh, one of my favorite rituals associated with the podcast. Uh, send us your songs. We'd love them. Also, another reminder, we are going to eventually be discussing the book The Great Influenza by John M. Barry. It's about the 1918 flu uh, Spanish flu epidemic that killed uh, I, some estimates as high as 50 million people. It's kind of folded into our memory of World War One. Um, so it was, was remained half, I would say, half forgotten until the COVID pandemic. And now people are interested. We're interested. It's supposed to be a great book. And we're going to read and discuss on a future episode this summer. So if you want to read along with us, if you want to have read it by the time we talk about it, uh, pick it up somewhere. In Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about uh, Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, wrote a preposterously fascistic uh, op-ed for the New York Times that uh, resulted in... Um, huge uh, institutional changes at the Times. We're going to be discussing whether or not they should have published it in the first place, what its contents were, and what the uh, what the fallout within the Gray Lady, within the paper, has been, including the loss of uh, the re- resignation of James Bennett, controversial head of the op-ed page. And then, um, finally, just as a general plug, you know, um, we need to keep the lights on uh, here at Slate. So if you love us and love this podcast and would like a little bit more of it, if you want to support us, you can always become a Slate Plus member, which is a huge, I can't even begin to describe it. It is a huge boon for us. It really helps get this show up and running. Uh, we mentioned it in our last episode, the health crisis has caused a reduction in spending at Slate. That's why we've gone on a biweekly schedule. We want to get back to weekly, believe me, but in order to do that, we need coin. We need bank. We need you to become a plus member, which we would be very grateful for. Um, if you'd like to support Slate Podcast and all the great journalism on the Slate website, sign up for Slate Plus membership at slate.com slash culture plus. That's slate.com slash culture plus you'll get ad-free podcasts exclusive plus only content and lots of other benefits you get a fourth segment from us uh every time we do the show and you help put us on a path back to um, a weekly podcast so once again that's slate.com slash culture plus and i thank you very much police are the street level point of contact between the citizen and state power it's something james baldwin knew something george orwell knew that a society's soul sickness will express itself most vividly in this interaction the truth about america as we have come to know it over and over again is that in effect our police have been given a lynching prerogative over black americans we've handed too much power to the police in real life but also so Alyssa Rosenberg argues imaginatively, uh, she's been detailing this subject for a while now, um, cop shows are ubiquitous and a longstanding part of our cultural diet. They shape how we see the police, uh, they give them legitimacy, they make them seem heroic. Uh, as I say, she's been writing about this for a while. She now has a new essay saying they should just be, go ahead and be, all be canceled. Let me quote from it. Like many other industries, entertainment companies have issued statements of support for the protests against racism and police brutality. But there's something Hollywood can do to put its money where its social media posts are. Immediately halt production on cop shows and movies and rethink the stories it tells about policing in America. Julia, that is is quite a suggestion. What do you make of it? Oh, Steve, you've cut right to my squishy core because reading this just twanged whatever internal heartstring of mine makes cop shows and lawyer shows and criminal justice shows and procedurals of all those stripes my main entertainment. I am not a doctor procedural person. I am a criminal justice procedural person. And I've watched so many hours of it. Some of it dumb, some of it smarter. But um, it it was one of those moments where I felt like 
uh, I could suddenly see the water in the fish tank and felt really dumb for having just glugged around for the rest of my life. So I don't know. I feel like I'm in too deep with Big Cop Show and uh, have many, many thoughts. Um, but I'm curious for the two of you who I think have spent less time curled up with um, the likes of Lenny Briscoe, uh, what you thought of the argument. Yeah, cop shows are not a huge part of my comfort TV entertainment diet, but this piece by Alyssa Rosenberg and, and others out there about the future of the police procedural in the post-whatever era we're entering into now did really make me think about those shows in a fish-looking-at-water way for the first time. I mean, it felt a little bit analogous, almost like a, an overlapping Venn diagram with something that we talked about in relation to, I think, True Detective and some other shows maybe on on this podcast a while back, which is you know, the the dead female body as kickoff point for so many narratives, right? That we're just so used to shows beginning with some sort of horrific um, violence and some crime scene involving a beautiful woman. And that just almost becomes something that we're blind to. Like, of course, every crime show must kick off that way, right? And it seemed like around Me Too time, people started to question, well, why? Why do we need dead pretty ladies in order to care about any story? And of course, you know, springing off of that is why are the ones investigating the death of the dead pretty lady always these cops whose point of view we're asked to sympathize with? And that, I think, was the strongest point that, that Alyssa made is that all of these shows, even including Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which takes everything from this very sweet, silly sitcom perspective, takes the point of view of the cops, makes the cops the protagonists in some way. And all of the video, which we'll talk about on this this same week's episode, all the video pouring in from various cities around the country last week did not, to say the least, make the police look like the protagonists of the story. I mean, you could not have made them look more like the villains of the story than most of the video that was pouring in. And so to suddenly start seeing this thing that, as you say, Julia, has just been comfort food and has really been, you know, the mainstay of middlebrow TV for decades, uh, as long as TV has existed, really. I mean, if you go back to the older cop shows of the 50s and 60s, to suddenly see that as propaganda for for the nation's police is is a big jolting shift. And one of those moments that you say, why didn't I see this before? Right. I mean, it's massively legitimating, right? Like, you know, we live in an essentially disorderly society or a, or a society that's mostly orderly, but has these pockets of, you know, of deeply unsettling disorder into the picture comes typically a white male, often a middle-aged white male whose job it is to make the universe right again and you know (laughs) there's so many different ways to get at this day and i want to ask you as a film historian about the relationship of hollywood to the police it was just it was not just an imaginative imaginative one the movie business needed the police on their side they tailored the content in order to keep the la police on their side allowing them to film in various ways and dragnet being the big seemingly offender there but but one thing i want to say quickly is that is that it is a complex story it's not as though it is sort of the water in the sense that in no small way it's the atmosphere that we're allowed to be unconscious of because we breathe it and sort of see through it at the same time you know there's there's an anti-heroic tradition that's curious in a way and and to me the difficult question is whether that that anti-heroic tradition actually is a part of the of the water is a part of the thing that needs to be thrown out but i i think that there are kind of two axes on which to review these shows one is do they make the cops look good or bad 
And then the second is, do they assume that people charged are taken seriously enough to power the plot of a 40-minute episode? Like, even in shows that are valorizing cops because they're working so hard to, like, bag the rapist or, um, you know, they, they, they're fighting against a bum prosecutor to, you know, even in shows that are complicating kind of traditional glorifying narratives, um, just the sheer fact that they assume that a person who has been accused of a crime and charged with it will like get a fair shake from a team of people who are, have the time and resources to like focus on it and try to achieve justice in some real sense. Like that is the fundamental lie. It's not that cops are good. It's that, that cops are cops that, that it's not just a completely dysfunctional bureaucracy. And so that was like the true glory of the wire, which is that it suggested that it's not so much good or bad. It's like the, the indifference of the system that is a fundamental um, immovable problem in our cities and communities. And I realized that I've just becoming like a good fight, good wife fan show at this point, <laughs> but I did finally finish the good wife. And there's a really, really interesting turn in a later season where the Juliana Margulies character, Alicia Florick, the good wife, um, starts working in bond court and she shows up to bond court where she gets like rapidly assigned to people who are trying to to get a low enough um, bail that they can actually get out. And it just looks so different from the rest of the show. Like the rest of the show is entirely women in extraordinary suits. And even the like daughters and assistants are wearing couture and the clients are rich and there's a fake Google and there's a fake Uber and there's a, you know, the, the, it's just swanky. It's a high-powered, high-dollar law firm that's the fundamental core setting. And so you experience the law as something that like rich people pay for and commit huge resources to. And then suddenly, Alicia and her slim shift dresses and suits and nice hair is in this environment where all of these people are about to lose their liberty. And um, the portrayal of the judge in bond court is just as a completely ruthless, practical guy who's got to process hundreds of people a day and makes all of these incredibly unfair decisions. And those are the places where a cop show could, um, you know, or criminal justice show can force people to examine some of their assumptions, maybe in ways that could be powerful and might be better than abandoning the show completely. But of course, like <laughs> those are fundamentally at odds with plot. Like that's why it's really hard to do if you don't, if you can't actually attach to any individual potential defendant um, long enough to follow them through the system and how it buffets them about, like y you don't really have a show. So it, it, that that's the tension that this left me thinking most deeply about. Right. It's almost as if achieving narrative satisfaction and catharsis at the end of that hour is inherently racist, right? Or inherently just um, blocking out of, of too many points of view and experiences, especially because in real life, you know, as you say, that, that narrative catharsis, if it happens at all, which it does in a rare percentage of cases, usually happens after years of struggle and things that are vague and hard to narrativize. I guess where I come out on this, and I'm curious to hear what you think, is that is that you have a you have a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you've got 
the cops quote unquote reality show, which is, you know, as we now know, thanks to that podcast, um, about it is just a completely fraudulent enterprise and a piece piece of utter propaganda, like race-based propaganda, and ought to be eliminated now. Yesterday, it should have been eliminated 15 years ago. And in fact, A&E has a similar show, as I understand it, called Live PD, which they've suspended out of respect, as they say, for the families of George Floyd. At the other extreme of which are, you know, is, you know, any attempt to explore, I mean, listen, you know, artists of conscience, including some of them who are not white, have written about what is sick or dislocated about their society using the inherited apparatus of the detective or cop. I mean, I would would say detective more than cop or spy genre playing off of this presumption that justice may be possible. You know, John le Carre is very unsure about Britain's role in the Cold War, like deeply, deeply unsure to the point of not being at all sure that it's worth fighting, you know, but because of the hideousness of the arms race, I don't think he should have not written those books because of how grotesque the arms race is. And I don't think Henning Monkle shouldn't have a detective protagonist. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's like somewhere in there, we have to get rid of a certain kind of fiction and the satisfactions it's deliver, it's designed to deliver by becoming conscious of whose worldview and whose rights are ultimately victimized by setting them up in a in a um, you know antiquely heroic way that we can absolutely do without. This conversation is making me want to defend to be against being against the cop show as a blanket statement because fundamentally it's anti-art and I recognize that you know there's a lot of pernicious stuff here and and this may be a slightly tenuous argument but like the power of the soft power of culture to change the way people think about things is a potent one and you know, there are also structural reasons why these shows work well, right? It's a mechanism through which you can tell stories that go all over society, right? You can pull things from the headlines, you can interrogate all kinds of things. Like they they function well, not just because everyone's like rah, rah cops, but because cops intersect with such a broad swath of society. And um, so you can like put your lens on lots of different things episode by episode. And that's a, that that functions as a television story generating mechanism that then generates an audience for these shows. But I do think Law & Order SVU is really interesting to scrutinize in this regard. And it's a show that, you know, has treated sexual assault as a serious thing worthy of scrutiny for 21 years. And I don't, I I am not going to credit SVU with changing social mores around these questions. But I think the fact that, that, you know, the hero of that show is someone who, you know, is more inclined to believe women and take their stories seriously and challenge how the criminal justice system treats these stories um, probably has changed some minds over time. Um, Now that's a show that also like in its early episodes would have people making jokes about like, he doesn't want to know what people are going to do to him in jail. And it's like literally making rape jokes while pretending to be, um, you know, a great advocates for victims of rape. Um, But I just think changing these shows 
and making them more sophisticated is a much more powerful thing, more difficult yeah. thing, right. but more powerful thing to do than to suggest that there's no um, smart, provocative, morally responsible way to make them. Yeah. Perhaps yeah, it's just yeah, a you... self-justifying argument, but <laughs> but I think that's where no. I land. Aren't we sort of talking around the, uh, uh, um, uh, the really opposite subject, which is whether or not to defund the police, right? I mean, the, the important real-life consequence of swimming perpetually in the waters of cop shows and cop imagery is that we accept as a given, as a natural given, that we should live in a hyper-policed society, right? And we just accept the basic premise that cops are everywhere, police are totally necessary, absent police, but God knows what would happen to the social order, like massive disorder would proceed, violence, we'd be completely vulnerable. And now, finally, I mean, that's the thing that I've really seen. I mean, okay, fine, like TV sucks. It's got filled with all of these images which are implicitly and explicitly racist. That's horrible. But the thing that I've really started to see is the defund the police movement is making a very specific point about what kind of a society we've chosen to be by taking money that could go to social workers, homelessness, drug rehabilitation, education, that would forestall the making of a disordered and in some ways quote-unquote criminal society that then requires police. We massively overfund the police based in part because as soon as we can see, hear, and talk, we're imbibing a kind of ideology about law and order via TV and, and movies. And and I just don't think that these are separable conversations. Well, and wouldn't it be interesting to see a TV show based on what happened in Camden, New Jersey, where they disbanded you know, an unfixably corrupt police department and replaced it with the county police department, so it's different than some of the things that are being proposed and discussed now. But you know, that's that's like a story that I want to read about in nonfiction form. And it's a story I want to write a story that'd right. be really interesting to, ha- you know, like, what if SVU got disbanded? Well, I should say that we were reacting principally to a, a piece in the Washington Post on June 4, 2020. It's called Shut Down All Police Movies and TV Shows, period, now, period, by Alyssa Rosenberg. There was also um, another one, Cops Are Always the Main Characters on Vulture from June 1 by Catherine Van Arendonk. Anyway, uh, all right, um, let's move on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. Pick or it didn't happen, so the saying goes on Twitter. Absent video footage, an officer abusing his powers can be like a tree falling in the forest. It might as well not have happened. A white woman faking hysteria to bring the cops down on a law-abiding black man. Who would know if not for the fact that we now all carry a movie camera in our pockets effectively? This has been what we might call a QED response by police forces to the protests in response to crowds protesting their brutality. They've been brutal, and it's been captured over and over uh, again on film. Uh, Dana, let me start with you. This is a curious moment, right? Uh, it's it's has some precedence in Rod, the Rodney King 
riots in LA and in Ferguson, and yet it's really not like either. It's bigger to the point of being global. Uh, there's, of course, the initial video that's revolting. It's an act of evil. Um, it's a lynching caught on film, but it's feeding into itself. It's these subsequent videos of how the police have responded to the protests that keep it growing, keep it its its righteousness really at the at the forefront. I'm a kind of a luddite. I think maybe you're a little bit of a luddite. Does this make? How does this make you think about? about this ability to capture on film what otherwise would be met with uh, plausible denial. I mean, I don't know that I would characterize myself as a Luddite necessarily or that that has bearing on the conversation, but it has been really remarkable to see the role that that Citizen Shot video has played in the unfolding of the last two weeks. It's almost as if, you know, that there's a different genre of, of viral video we've been seeing since the days of Philando Castile and before have been seeing horrible videos, which to be honest with you, I usually don't watch of, of people's deaths recorded at the hands of police, right? Those have been around. And in that sense, the George Floyd video is not new. And maybe we can talk about how it's different or why it in particular at this moment has sparked what it has. But this secondary genre I'm talking about that it has sparked has been these police brutality videos on the ground that were just coming in so thick and fast last week that when we sat down to research this segment, it was hard to know, okay, which of the hundreds of these things should should I look at and think about? Um, I mean, we we're just talking about cop shows as this as this cultural brand that centers everything from the perspective of the police, right? And this is the complete reverse. It's suddenly a vision for, you know, people who are privileged enough and white enough usually not to know about it before of what happens every night in some neighborhoods and cities, right? I mean, the sense last week when New York was under curfew, you guys weren't here, but you're both New Yorkers in some way. You've both lived here for long periods. Steve, you're from here. And you can just imagine how bizarre and almost just uh, monstrous it felt to know that when dusk fell on the city, it was the cops that were in charge. And you knew that over the course of the night, those videos would be shot by various people at protests or sometimes not at protests, just trying to get home after curfew, you know, being randomly beaten and assaulted by cops. They were horrible to watch. And you knew that in the morning, there'd be a fresh pile of them. And there would be, you know, the mayor or the governor trying to soft pedal them and make them sound as if they weren't as bad as they are. So there was a really radical role that those videos played. And I believe that as much as the protests themselves, it was the circulating videos of violence during the protests that got some real action done this past week. I mean, whatever you say about this past week, it accomplished something, right? I mean, by the end of the week, all four of the officers involved in George Floyd's death had been arrested and investigations into other Murders by cops had been started and Minneapolis started to rethink how it's going to structure its police department and stuff happened. And it seems to me that why that stuff happened to a large degree is because of this incontrovertible video evidence of, you know, just just awful acts of violence. One of the things that I think is, I don't know, that that is queasy making about it to me is that obviously the rise of the handheld camera and a lot of people having phones that are now what we would have called camcorders when I was little, um, has meant that we've had direct video evidence of police brutality for the last decade. And as you say, with Rodney King, there, there of course, has been video evidence going back further, but just the sheer accumulated number of these incidents and of, you know, human deaths that you watch, you can watch online that are, you know, 
snuff films perpetrated by the state, um, they're not new. Like they're, they're, there has been a steady drumbeat of them for as long as there have been handheld video cameras in our phones. And there is something that makes me queasy about the fact that it's the, it's the, it's the violence against the protesters that seems to be kind of creating this mounting outrage beyond the initial videos of the deaths of um, suspects or arrestees at the hands of cops. Um, you know, even the the horrifying video of the man that the police pushed down who, who, who smacked his head in Buffalo, you know, who's a frail elderly white man. I just think the galvanizingness of that image had an air of like, oh my God, they can do this to like little old white men too. You know, there, there's just something disturbing to me in the fact that, um, oh no, the cops are going ham on everybody now, not just these right. black people we've been watching die that, that troubles me. I, t- I take the other side of that one, Julia. I mean, I understand what you're saying. I think what the subsequent videos have done, you know, cause the, the pushback argument Aside from the grotesque defense lawyer argument that the foot on the neck or the knee on the neck didn't cost them, we know all the horrible arguments that got the officers off in Simi Valley for for um, the Rodney King incident, you know, which we're inevitably going to hear uh, unless they cop a plea. You know, it's it's more the you know uh, this is one unrepresentative incident. Yes, this was you know hand wringing, all kinds of fake public hand wringing about. Um, you know, about how uh, horrible it is and, you know, we, no tolerance for this on our force and the culture of blah, 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 and this one bad apple. Well, the one bad apple argument goes out every known window to mankind as soon as you have the, you know, it's just the mask falling completely from the, the face of law enforcement endemically in this country. It's not about a bad apple. It's about the the police's the the cops belief law enforcement's belief in America that when push comes to shove they own the streets and if you dare exercise your first amendment right to take ownership of them and then double dare uh by um using that constitutional right to proclaim the inherent corruption of law enforcement law enforcement will by force reappropriate the streets from you that's to me a much I mean, I understand that 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 at least momentarily deracializes the issue of law enforcement in this country, which should not stay deracialized for more than a second. But but you know, but there is this other component to the conversation, which is, you know, how deep does this tendency towards violence um, and force and kind of pathological overmastery go in law enforcement and that can only be answered by seeing how black and white protesters have been treated basically like you know garbage to be cleared off of the street right yeah i mean i I will say the most troubling thing we're recording this on the morning where trump tweeted disparagement of the man in buffalo who was pushed to the ground did you see this tweet yeah, I just saw that as we were talking. I've just experienced the burst of rage that occurs upon reading any tweet by the president. I, I mean, obviously, there's there's been Bill de Blasio sort of denying what you know New Yorkers have seen posted from their own streets and seeming to not be caught up on what everyone else in the country is watching. But Trump really took it to another level, and just the 
it's a cliche to call anything Orwellian at this point, but like <laughs> these video, this, that video you watched of a very obvious uh, situation, like that elderly man was a, it was secretly an agitator. What I, I, I can't even, I couldn't even really fully understand what it was that Trump was trying to allege, but he was basically saying, don't believe your eyes. Right. That, that wasn't what you thought it right. was. Um, and, right. and the fact that these videos force people in power into such contortions is part of their power. Right. And that's why I say that a, a new genre or some kind of alternate cinematic universe is opened up by these citizen shot videos, as opposed to the videos of police brutality that we have seen so many of over the years. It's because the response of those in power, whether it's police chiefs or mayors or governors or the president, really shows that, you know, it goes all the way to the top and that there is an incredible culture of denial and obfuscation and, you know, now also spinning of conspiracy theories and just any kind of mechanism that can possibly be used to deflect responsibility from the police departments. Right, right. And Dana, that's what I meant when I said Luddism or Luddite. I I didn't mean to foreground that at all, but I mean, you know, we, we sort of have been trained by George Orwell in 1984, and to a degree like Foucault and the idea of the panopticon that being perpetually watched, or at least potentially potentially watched, you know, much less filmed, is just pernicious, right? And it brings out a principled Luddism, and some people, me included, that says, you know, the ubiquity of of what are effectively camcorder pocket camcorders, you know, it's it's you 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 know you want to be able to withdraw from, you know, the lens. But in fact, really, or at least as a part of that, is the possibility of laying down a predicate which requires those in power to say only the most perverted and Orwellian lies to defend that behavior. Because now we have, you know, we have the the, the optical proof that this thing happened. And to your point about the the assumption that it would not be good to be surveilled, you know, that was what was so powerful about the video shot by uh, the bird watcher in Central Park of the woman, Ann Cooper, who sort of worked herself into a hysterical tizzy and lied to the police to, you know, accuse a black man of, of threatening behavior that was not in evidence. You know, that's the kind of surveillance not of what the state is doing to black citizens and to protesters, but of what white people can do in moments that are smaller and where the violence is, um, at least in that moment, not yet physical. Although obviously calling the police on a black person is brings the potential of physical violence. But um, it, it, right, she, I mean, she knew she was being shot, which is part of what is so astonishing about that document. Like, the notion that she would work herself into that hysteria. And I, re- I recognize that that is a word with that is fraught in gendered fashion, but the way in which you can see her working herself up despite knowing that it will be filmed uh, is, is among the things that makes that video extraordinary, but right. It's a, it's a surveillance of all kinds of harms um, that is helping people see. Right. And we're so used to talking about social media as something that, you know, is is negatively Orwellian in its surveillance tactics and that Mark Zuckerberg is harvesting our data, which he is, and, you know, that our minds are being controlled by all of these bad actors, which they are. But I feel like the last week or two, however long this has been, I guess it's been two weeks since George Floyd's death and about a week since all of these curfews and protests started, 
we've really seen a much more utopian side and more, more utopian usage of, of social media and of, you know, omnipresent cameras in everyone's pockets, which is, as you say, Stephen, I mean, just that we have receipts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Our, as- some of us, I would note, have been making that case about social media throughout the arc of the show. Just, I, just I just completely disagree with this characterization of me as like the Quaker Oats guy when it I comes to social media. Character- I spend Dana. my life on Twitter. I do not think she's characterizing you. Yeah, well, we just discovered. I'm not characterizing you. I'm de- I'm just defending my. <laughs> I'm just like the record to show that as the technophile, the show's official technophile, I have made this point before about well, social media well, giving right. voice to people who don't get a voice through official channels. We've also just discovered that while Julia and I are talking, you scroll Twitter. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, I think it's time to move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, we talked today with Lauren Michelle Jackson about anti-racist reading lists and their pitfalls, um, but I'm going to endanger myself by recommending something that might have appeared on one of those reading lists or actually something that Lauren, as she pointed out in, in her piece against them, is unlikely to appear, which is a piece of cultural writing by James Baldwin. So um, as I mentioned to her, you know, we we read often his his kind of manifestos about race, which are fantastic. I mean, everything by James Baldwin is worth reading. But he was also such a sharp cultural critic. So I'm just going to recommend one of his essays on film, which is from his great book, The Devil Finds Work. And you can read it in that book, or you can also find a, a fairly long excerpt from that book on the Penguin Random House website. Uh, we can put a link up to it, but it's a wonderful autobiographical essay where James Baldwin remembers going to the movies as a child and specifically Betty Davis and his intense identification with Betty Davis when he saw her as maybe a 10-year-old boy. And I mean, talk about intersectionality, just like this this black, gay, 10-year-old kid who falls in love with Joan Crawford and Betty Davis on the big screen and talks about how that sort of sparked his his awakening, you know, as a critic and as a, as a cultural observer is really, really extraordinary. So um, we'll put a link to this excerpt on the show page, but I really encourage you to go to bookshop.org or someplace that is at Amazon and buy The Devil Finds Work by James Baldwin. Marvelous. Uh, Julia, what do you have? This is a bit of an update of an earlier endorsement. I think early on in the pandemic, I said I was watching The Good Wife and endorsed it as worth watching. Um, But I really want to reiterate what I said in our segment about cop shows. I think that show is great, like really smart and there's so much in it that is a precursor for everything radical and wild that its creators are doing with The Good Fight, which is the Christine Baranski show that we discussed last year. Um, and sort of a, it's it's the Frasier to The Good Wife's Cheers. But season seven, which is the final season, I think does a really good job of of landing the plane of that show. And it's the season that puts Alicia in bond court and kind of puts the lie to the depiction of criminal justice that has... Uh, been put forth earlier on in the show and it's not the wire it's like you know it's a it's a primetime network show but um it's a it's it it does not get mentioned often in the same breath as the wire but i think it deserves attention so season seven of the good wife Mm. uh okay so i don't really have an endorsement this week i have a quick story and a plea the story is that um, my kids really wanted to protest i live in the middle of rural New York State. Uh, I live in an overwhelmingly white town. I mean, almost universally white town, 99%. I think the county is overwhelmingly white as well. Um, but it was important to them and therefore it was important to me. It was important to me to begin with. I should say I just didn't really know where to go or how to do it. Um, so uh, we went as a family down to uh, the town hall of Ghent, New York, and we stood on a corner um, with our COVID masks on and signs saying, um, 
enough is enough, Black Lives Matter. I mean, the typical signs that you saw. And um, uh, I had uh, one of the four or five most moving and incredible experiences of my life. We are led to believe that that America and white America is inherently um, against these protests, is in inherently reactionary and dangerously so. We are sold on this. I mean, there is a dangerous fringe in this country. I don't mean to minimize it, but it is used as a way of silencing and vetoing the idea that there are a bunch of really angry white men with guns, which is true. I'm not saying it's not true, but I went down there thinking that we would have trouble, like real trouble. I'm in that kind of community, giant pickup trucks and guys love their guns around here. I would say the positive response to our protest on this busy intersection ran about six, seven or eight to one uh, from the most unexpected places. We had guys on hogs on harleys going by honking putting their thumbs up we had guys in magnificently huge preposterously huge pickup trucks leaning out the window and uh cheering us on we had two sheriff's cars drive by and give us this very subtle thumbs up it is really really wide and deep out there and the illusion that we're a 50-50 country, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, in some obvious respects we are, and in some like deeply, deeply unnerving sense we are, but there is something happening, and to see it up close is an incredible, inc- it's, just, it is, it's just an unbelievable experience to see the cross-section of white people in America who you would not expect would be on the side of this protest who are. So my plea to you is uh, listeners, find your righteous self, listen to it, get on the right side of history, get your ass out there, get a COVID mask on your face, make a sign and protest. All right. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We love those emails. Uh, we're falling behind. I'm falling a little bit behind on them, but I'm about to um, catch up. You can interact with us on Twitter. It's, uh, our feed is at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Mm-hmm.